You are listening to the Forcecom Frontline, bringing you to our soldiers on the front lines of readiness. Welcome back to the Forcecom Frontline. I'm Ashley and I'm your host. We've spent a lot of time over the last couple of months really diving into all aspects of readiness. And while our topic today does directly affect readiness, that really isn't our focus. So first, joining me to help host this episode is Kelsey Hurt, and she is our Forcecom Suicide Prevention Response and Analysis Coordinator. And she's been on the podcast before, but as a guest. And so I asked her to join me because she's way smarter than me on this topic. Um, So I need her help. Um, So welcome, Kelsey, and thanks for doing this with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm super excited as always. Anytime we get to talk suicide prevention, I'm all in. <laughs> so it's been a little while since we've had you on. So before we go to our guests, I just wanted to quickly ask you, are there any updates from the Forcecom suicide prevention side that you can share with us? Yeah, I think uh, the line that I used last time in the podcast was, fortunately or unfortunately, we have so much going on yes. in the suicide prevention space. Um, So so I'll just hit some quick highlights. Um, You know, we've really seen some great efforts across um, Forces Command and across the Army to really curb the suicide problem. Um, One of the great things that we've been seeing is, um, and it's out at Fort Riley's Operation Victory Wellness, um, the utilization of those non-clinical and clinical resources to really get to those um, issues, if any, early. Um, and that kind of goes along with really Forcecom's efforts to pivot from um, the response and uh, or the intervention and response to the prevention side. Um, along those same lines, we did just complete um, the VICE's suicide prevention chain teach. Um, so really getting all those leaders engaged um, from you know our four-star generals down to our squad level leaders mm-hmm. and um, really making sure that everyone's taking the time to get their know your to get to know their soldiers um, and really just spend some time um, team building and building trust as well. Um, All really important protective factors for suicide prevention. Absolutely. Um, And then I'll just quickly mention that, um, God, I guess it was last last Friday now, um, on the 1st of April, uh, General Garrett held his suicide fatality review board with uh, leaders across Forces Command. And not only did we get a brief um, from the Department of the Army analytics team um, about some of those Forcecom unique equities regarding suicides and the operational force, um, but we also had a wonderful financial brief um, from Ms. Robin out at Army G9, um, again, trying to get after those protective factors and, and upstream to those prevention efforts. Yeah, and you know, two of the things you mentioned, First, Victory Wellness. We had Major General Sims on the podcast earlier this year, uh, and what they have going on out there is amazing. And I told him the the idea of having soldiers have to go meet with a counselor so they're they're exposed to that is just, I think, a really great great program. Um, and then we also just had on earlier this month, uh, Robin, who gave the financial brief during our meeting. So um, she's wonderful as well. And she has a ton of great information. And she's super enthusiastic. So it was great to talk to her and listen to her. Yeah, really great um, efforts, like I said, going across um, priority and and really putting their all into this. So yeah, it's, it's important. Well, and you know, and I didn't get to talk to talk to this talk to her about this, but, you know, the whole connection between suicide and financial stress. Um, we talked more about the resources available to help soldiers, um, but I I actually hope to get her back so we can talk about the whole, that whole tie together, because I think that that is really important and something that I, I don't know that 
you think about very often, although, you know, we've talked quite a bit and it is a major stressor. Yeah. I mean, that along with relationships and work stress, um, you know, all of those are really important to to try to get to early on yeah. and, and work on those coping skills, those communication skills, and, and really try to plan ahead for some of those um, life events that we know are coming up. Absolutely. So let's go ahead and bring in our guest. And I've said this before, but we've spent a, a good amount of time discussing suicide on the podcast. And while that is our focus today, we're actually taking a little bit of a different approach when we're looking at it. We're joined by Dr. Craig Bryan, and he is a board-certified clinical psychologist in cognitive behavioral psychology. He is a stress, trauma, and resilience professor of psychiatry and behavioral health at The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and is the division director for recovery and resilience. While serving in the Air Force, Dr. Bryan deployed to Iraq in 2009, where he served as the director of the Traumatic Brain Injury Clinic at the Air Force Theater Hospital. He separated from active duty shortly after his deployment and started researching PTSD, suicidal behaviors, and suicide prevention strategies in psychological health and resiliency. Well, welcome, Dr. Bryan, and thank you for taking the time to talk with me and Kelsey today. Yeah, well, thanks for inviting me. I know that you've um, you've recently spent a lot of time with Forcecom soldiers, and so I'm really excited to to hear what you have to say about those visits. So I'm just going to start with you know I've read over your bio, and you've done a lot and continue to to do a lot with service members and veteran. And I know you're a veteran yourself, um, but can you talk about what led you to focus so much of your career on suicide and PTSD? Yeah, um, I, mean, I, I guess you know. So I, I was in graduate school training to be a, a psychologist before I joined the military, and was you know, interested in suicide and trauma at that time. Um, but, you know, I, I eventually commissioned, um, you know, finished up my graduate training as a psychologist on active duty, uh, served my commitment. And uh, in 2009, I uh, deployed to Iraq. And um, while I was deployed, that was, I, I think that was really where my sort of understanding of trauma and suicide sure really changed, became more personal um, at that time. And I think, you know, specific to the case of suicide, um, you know, uh, to be frank, it was the first time as a psychologist that I really kind of came face to face with, you know, kind of the brutality of suicide. I, you know, in our hospital, we treated uh, gunshot wound victims, self-inflicted gunshot wound victims. And so, um, you know, as a psychologist, and I think for many of us, suicide is something that happens somewhere else, you know, happens in someone's home, um, things like that. And it's definitely true for mental health professionals. And so um, kind of seeing like kind of face to face the reality of suicide, it definitely, um, you know, is definitely transformative for me, really cemented my resolve, yeah. uh, my commitment to suicide prevention. Okay. And then I know Ashley um, had just mentioned that you had spoken to a number of the command teams within Forcecom Footprint and, uh, you know, about suicide and suicide prevention. And I know you're scheduled actually, I think next week to talk to all the Forcecom commanders, um, which we're really looking forward to as well. Uh, what what has your message uh, been to them? I, w- I would say that, you know, the overriding message was that we, we probably need to rethink how we approach suicide. And to do that, we need to rethink what suicide is in and of itself. 
Um, you know, I think we've historically thought of suicide as a symptom of mental illness or this this outcome that's caused by mental illness. Um, but research doesn't really support that all that much. Um, and, and we know that actually the majority of service members who die by suicide do not have a mental health condition. Um, and so that's been a lot of the research that we've conducted over the past 10 years or so with the military to kind of lead us to this place that um, perhaps part of the reason we've not been more effective at suicide prevention in the military is because we're, we're sort of shooting at the wrong target. We, we don't fully understand um, suicide. And if we redirect our focus and our aim, um, I think we would be much more successful. So I'm curious, how do you think we should redirect that? Um, I, me and Kelsey sit in a lot of meetings and we talk about, you know, some of the stressors, you know, the financial stress, the relationships. Um, Kelsey, jump in with the ones that I'm missing. Yeah, work stress and sleep and, um, you know, all of those different things. And so is this a, is this a valid thing? Are we are we thinking about the right things? Um, so so all those are risk factors for sure. Um and, and they can sometimes lead to suicide, but most of the time they don't, right? I mean, what, 99% of the sure. time, those things do not result in suicide. And so that's, that's sort of the conundrum that I think many of us have been contending with is that these things that are, you know, kind of associated with increased risk for suicide at the same time, very rarely lead to suicide. And so, um, so the, the, there's kind of like three, I think, kind of key directions that I think we can take to probably improve our efforts. The first of which is um, on the mental health treatment side. Um, there, so there's some people who die by suicide who do have a mental health condition. They have depression or anxiety, sure. things like that. And they go to the MTF, they go to the hospital on base to receive care. Um, what we've learned and what we've been able to show over the past decade is that there are newer types of treatments, newer types of therapies, non-medication therapies that are actually really, really good at preventing uh, suicidal behaviors amongst military personnel. So we've shown that things like cognitive behavioral therapy for suicide prevention um, reduces suicide attempts by about 60% or more amongst active duty personnel as compared to more traditional therapies. So there's one piece is just changing the therapies, doing the things that are more effective. Um, the second thing that we're learning is changing the environment. Um, I think the third rail of suicide prevention, well, one, one issue that we've largely ignored is that access to highly lethal methods of suicide increase the likelihood of bad outcomes during an acute crisis. Um, and in particular in the military, about 70% of our suicides involve firearms. Right. Um, and so easy, ready access to loaded weapons increases the likelihood of a fatal outcome. Whereas very simple strategy like just locking up and securing our home firearms um, in safes using locking devices can actually prevent suicide. And then third, um, I, I think the other kind of big miss is recognizing that suicide is partly about quality of life. You know, so when you're talking about things like relationship problems, work stress, these are things when we experience these problems um, that sort of it's sort of like it reduces uh, kind of the attractiveness of living, right? And I think, um, you know, when people are experiencing that suicidal crisis, they're kind of on this tipping point. It's like, do I live or do I die? Sure. Um, and if life doesn't have 
if it doesn't seem like it's worth living, then suicide becomes more probable. And so being able to address these sort of everyday stressors and problems, they don't they're not big traumas or anything, yeah. but by, you know, sort of making life worth living, um, that I think can help to tip someone towards or away from uh, suicide when they're on that precipice. Absolutely. So you you already alluded a little bit to my next questions, um, but I know that you have spoke with specifically um, some soldiers at the 101st about weapons storage. And so I know you said, you know, locking up a lethal means can make all of the difference. Can you just, can you expand on that a little bit more? Yeah. Um, so interestingly, you know, some of our traditional assumptions about suicide are that, you know, it's a, it's about how upset somebody is, or we use this term called intent. How, how much do they want to die? And that primarily determines whether or not someone's going to kill themselves. And that's actually not really well supported. The strongest sort of determinant or correlate of death after a suicide attempt is how convenient is a highly lethal method. Uh, so firearms, something, you know, service members are much more likely than civilians to have firearms. Um, I mentioned before, 70% of our suicides involve uh, firearms. Interestingly, another way of looking at it, over 85% of gun deaths among service members are suicides. Um, so gun fatality in the military is basically all about suicide. Yeah. So it's hard to really address suicide prevention without talking about firearms. Um, and the, the reason why pretty simple strategies like using gun safes, using gun locks, um, uh, kind of storing things out of sight unloaded makes a difference. It's based on the same principle that something as simple as locking the doors of your house deters crime. Yeah. Uh, you know, locking your car door oftentimes keep someone from stealing stuff out of your car, sure. even though it's easy to smash the window, right? <laughs> um, you know, it's like, it's it's just inconvenient enough yeah. that someone says, ah, well, it's locked. I guess I won't do that. And, and that same principle seems to be true then um, when it comes to firearms. So it's, it's contradictory to what most people think, which is if someone wants to kill themselves badly enough, they'll find another way. And so locking up the guns won't make a difference. Well, it's actually does make a difference for the same reason that, again, locking your doors is enough to deter, a, a, you know, someone from breaking in or getting it into mischief of some form or fashion. Yeah, I've always thought that that was so interesting, that fact, just putting the time between the thought and the access to the lethal means, it, it does, it makes a difference. Yeah, it does. It, it's because we know. So here's here's some more research that we've <laughs> learned in the military. Over half of service members who uh, attempt suicide, they basically make the decision on the same day within a few hours of acting. So there's a pretty narrow window yeah. of, of time between when they say I'm going to do it and it actually happens. Um, it would, it, what we know is that those periods of peak distress tend to only last a few minutes maybe a few hours at most. Um, and so if you think of just a few minutes of someone being really, really upset or really distressed, um, just that little bit of a slowdown maybe is just enough to get past the peak and to start yeah. kind of coming back down. And that's, that is, that's a whole point is just to kind of slow someone down, make it inconvenient enough. And that few seconds or few minutes um, actually can save a life. Yeah. 
And and especially for Forcecom, I know you gave us some of the army and military stats, but when you pull out Forcecom, we see that um, you know suicide by privately owned weapons is also even higher. We're looking at 75, 78%, um, and that's a massive increase over the last two years where we were in the you know high 50s, low 60s. So um, you know this is so important, and and all the time we get leaders saying hey, give us evidence-based or evidence-informed suicide prevention efforts. And and here it is, you know, with this access yeah. to lethal means. But we still struggle to get some of that traction. Um, so, again, I know you talked about gun locks, but um, are there other options for some individuals, peers, leaders, and family members to assist with that access to lethal means piece? Yeah, there's there's actually quite a, a lot of options. And I'll admit, you know, over the past several years as I've done more and more of this work, I'm constantly learning new strategies and I learn them from service members. I learn from the gun owners. And because oftentimes we ask the question, well, if locking it up isn't going to work, if you don't have a safe, what's something else you can do? And there's some pretty creative ways that people have been able to um, accomplish the goal using, you know, whatever they have available at home. People will use like Pelican cases. They use um, other lock boxes that they have. Some people will dismantle um, their firearm and like say give a component to a friend um, you know others will some people will go so far as to um, actually have their a friend or a trusted person um, you know actually possess or keep the firearms for a limited period of time it's kind of like you know designated driver right you give your keys to someone when you're um, drunk so that you don't um, have a bad outcome when you're driving uh, it's, it's kind of the same idea hey I'm not you know I'm not in a great place right now I'll, I'll give you this sort of potentially dangerous tool or, or weapon temporarily. Um, and so, uh, yeah, there's, there's kind of been a, a, a nice range of options. And, um, you know, so I think a lot of it is if you think of the principle really of being sort of like slowing a person down, um, you know, kind of placing a barrier, then you almost there's lots of different ways to do that. Now, the, the one last thing I'll say, though, is that, you know, the counterpoint to that, what a lot of people are worried about is they they own and possess uh, firearms for home protection, home security. And so they're like, well, yeah, if I, but if I, I can't get to my firearm right away, yeah. uh, that's a problem, <laughs> right? And, and I think that's a great point. And so um, we found, uh, interestingly enough, now kind of a, a newer, more popular strategy is um, like these biometric um, safes, you can get actually mm. small little um, kind of lock boxes, storage containers, things like that, about the size of a handgun. That's what most people use for home security is a handgun. Um, and it's like a fingerprint, you know, and you put your fingerprint on, which is nice, especially if you're a parent, because if you don't yeah. want your kids to have access to firearms uh, without your permission, um, you can actually set them up as well for this uh, added uh, safety precaution as well. So, and, and some of these things now they'll even connect to like your smartphone and connect <laughs> of it to course an app they will. <laughs> Again, it's nice because if, you know, someone's trying to get it, like let's say your kid's trying to get into uh, the, to access a firearm without your permission while you're at work, it'll yeah. send you a push notification, say someone's trying to get into your guns right now. So, uh, so there's, there's, I don't know. There's lots of different ways, and uh, we've been. I think there's a lot of flexibility in how we can increase home safety for people. You know, and I think too. You know, this is this is about protecting yourself, but this is responsible gun ownership as well. And and I don't I don't know. Just 
being responsible. I had another thought, but yeah. it, it left me. <laughs> well, well, you well, know, which... the millennial in me loves the the millennial in me loves the technological advances that make so much sense. Yeah. Um, There's just so many options. Really make a big impact. Well, it's it's sort of funny. I heard someone joke once. They're like, "Oh, I guess there really is an app for everything." Now I'm like, <laughs> "Yes, there's now an app to even secure your firearms." Uh, but you know, it's it's interesting with the military on this topic as well because a lot of these precautions that we're talking about, we do this routinely in our lives in the military. You go out to the firing range. You got to do your qualifications, marksmanship training, things like that. We have all these rules um, at the firing range to, you know, prevent accidents to prevent injury death things like that we we secure the weapons in our armories on base in very particular ways or all these kind of policies and sops around that uh, but sort of like as soon as we leave the gate at the end of the day we sort of like throw all of that you know out <laughs> the window and we don't take many of the same precautions at home and so it's kind of interesting that there is this sometimes i think this this sort of barrier of the things that are totally natural and logical to us at work, um, we don't necessarily apply that same logic at home. The the one phrase we also hear, kind of starry stepping away from the the lethal means piece, but we hear it a lot after a suicide. Um, you know, I never saw this thump, this coming. I never thought this person would hurt themselves. Um, how can we encourage soldiers to speak up and ask for help? Um, or or better recognize that someone is going through something. And uh, I'm going to put a little bit of a caveat on this question because my personal interest, I would say, take me down through, you know, universal prevention and individualized prevention, but, um, but definitely um, kind of what people are going through and how do we encourage them? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the, the issue of like warning signs is tricky because I think what you're getting at there is they're probably, uh, well, I, I'm not even going to say problem. There are definitely instances of suicides where there were not detectable or meaningful warning signs. And that I know is probably a provocative statement because like the whole enterprise is around, you know, if if, if you didn't see any warning signs, you just weren't paying attention is almost <laughs> kind of like the attitude we have. But I don't think that's the case. And I've I found it helpful to kind of think about how to frame this with thinking of other sort of tragic deaths. So think of something like uh, car crashes, like fatal car crashes. Um, oftentimes the warning signs for a fatal car crash, you know, you can't really see it well in advance. You know, someone might get T-boned, right? Or they they hit a patch of black ice on the highway and they spin out. And by the time you see those warning signs, the crash has already happened. Um, and so I, I think that's kind of important for us to realize because there are some suicides where a person uh, does kind of have an incremental progression towards it. They're, they're talking about how they don't want to be around anymore. They kind of feel like, I can't take this anymore. Um, you know, we've, our research has shown that things like, um, I, I don't deserve to be forgiven. I deserve to be punished. Um, nothing is going to help me solve my problems. Those are pretty useful indicators that someone um, definitely is not doing well and that uh, suicide might be on the horizon. Um, and, and so I think being alert to those sorts of verbalizations because they don't involve the S word, right? It's not necessarily that someone is going to say, I'm going to kill myself. I'm thinking about suicide. We're finding it's more common for them to say these other things. Like I can't take this anymore. I just, 
you know, I can't, um, I can't handle this. Um, those are the, those are important warning signs and act there. Um, and, and be kind of alert to that, what I, I like to call the coded language of suicide. That's much more likely to be uh, what we're going to hear in our friends, our family members, and our uh, peers. So, you know, we've, we've observed this, this problem for years now. And in your opinion, what do you think are some of the top actions we as Forcecom or even the Army can take to try to prevent suicide? And that's a big yeah. question. Yeah, it is. And, you know, it's it's sort of it's always hard to answer. And, and, you know, so I recently, you know, just just published a new book called Rethinking Suicide and kind of tackle this issue. And one of the kind of the key arguments that I make is that we always kind of look for what's the thing that we can do. And there is no the thing. There's multiple things because there are multiple pathways to suicide. There are multiple sort of types of suicide. Um, now, having said that, I think there's a handful of things that can be done. Um, and I, I do think, um, first and foremost, the single easiest thing that we could be doing at scale is um, really talking about access to lethal methods. Um, so definitely firearms, um, how we store firearms, how we keep them in our homes, being willing, you know, when we know that um, a friend, family member, loved one, someone is going through a rough patch, um, offering um, to temporarily hold their firearms to, to provide them if they don't have safes or locking device, provide that for them, um, take that step. Um, I, I think those are some of the, the key things. Medications as well. Many of us have, you know, just sort of leftover meds in our home. Um, and so, you know, either dispensing of them appropriately, locking them up, just so that they're not quite as easily available in large quantities is another very easy thing that we could sure. be doing to prevent suicides. Um, and then I think the the last part of it is something newer that we're learning is that again, it's not always it's not always the case that people are going to again say, "I want to die, I want to kill myself," um, but they have these other sorts of indicators where it's the sense, it's sort of like, I just feel like I'm on the edge, like I can't take it anymore. Um, I'm, I'm sort of at my wit's end. Those are oftentimes more subtle indicators that someone might be at risk. Um, and so being alert to that, I think sometimes we wait for the word suicide or the word death to come out, and then we act. Um, and by then, sometimes it, it might be too late. So um, I, I, I think those are maybe three of the key things that very easily right away we could be doing um, that don't, don't really cost a lot of money, um, sure. but could have a really big impact. So I want to circle back to something you said earlier, actually, you talked about value of life. And so can you expand on that a little bit? Because I know that is something that um, our vice chief of staff of the army has has started talking about as well. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on it and yeah. what it means to you really. So this, so if we, if we go back to, you know, I mentioned before that we've traditionally thought of suicide as like a symptom or outcome of mental illness. And um, it doesn't, that doesn't actually really seem to be a very helpful way of thinking about suicide. Um, there's now a, a growing body of research showing that suicide's more usefully thought of as what we would call a health behavior. Health behaviors are like things like smoking, drinking, uh, 
you know, safe sex, uh, things like that, where um, it's definitely a, it's an action that's taken that might impact your well-being. Um, and so decisions like that, actions of that sort are influenced by, you know, motivations, uh, by reinforcements, by rewards, by punishments. Um, and that seems to be a, a key aspect of suicide. And so, you know, when you think of suicide, it, it sort of brings us to death, right? It, it results in death. And most, you know, we, we kind of are programmed to avoid death, right? <laughs> um, so death is threatening. Um, and so just biologically, we've been programmed to stay alive. Um, but what can happen is over time for some people, life or living becomes punishing, living becomes threatening. Um, you know, this is where I think things like the relationship failures, financial strain, disciplinary action, things like that come into play, where now, in essence, the alternative to suicide, the alternative is to death is living. Um, but if living is punishing, if it's aversive, um, it, it's not really quite so attractive anymore, right? It doesn't have as much perceived value. Then the last thing that we're learning is, so suicide is not actually motivated by the desire to die. People typically don't attempt suicide because they want to be dead. They attempt suicide because they don't want to experience that aversive, punishing stressful situation anymore. So it's the eject button. Um, and so under this sort of mixture of circumstances, if suicide starts to become appealing as the eject button, um, it's sort of like now this person has this decision that they're confronted with. Death is kind of intimidating. Living seems really miserable and punishing. Um, here is this strategy that I might be able to employ to get away from it. Okay. Um, and so I, I know it's kind of a long answer, but that's really kind of where this whole fitting of, you know, life being worth living is, is a key part. And so there are things at an institutional level, at a community level that can potentially be changed so that if a person finds himself on that tipping point, um, what we want them to be able to do is say, well, living is worth it. It, it might be unfortunate. It's going to be stressful. We're all human. Uh, there's going to be some downsides to it. But there are things about living that are inherently rewarding that I want, that I, I, I want to have. Um, and so we have to then, what that means is eliminate things from, you know, the, the community, the environment that kind of degrade the value of living and we want to promote and do things that encourage and increase quality of life. Kelsey? I was, <laughs> was going to say, I think that goes, um, you know, I think that kind of covered one of our last questions on on the socioeconomic public health approach um, and, and what that looks like and, and what that could mean with really the Army's effort and force comms efforts specifically to pivot from this intervention and response um, to those protective factors of connectedness and, and belongingness and whether it's community, whether it's spirituality, um, uh, making sure that we are, again, setting them up for that success um, of a life worth living. Um, so 
So I know I don't have any other questions on my end, but Ashley, I wanted to kick it back over to you to make sure I covered uh, what I was supposed to cover. <laughs> well, so I was actually, it's funny, I was going to kick it over to you because we are running out of time. So um, since you are my suicide prevention expert, I wanted to give you another opportunity if there's anything else you wanted to ask Dr. Brian before we run out of time. Um, so I could probably ask Dr. <laughs> I could ask you a million questions and then still have more questions to come. But um, I just want to say thank you for taking this time. And I really want to hit on two of the the points that you made about actions we could take um, when we're talking about, you know, access to lethal means. Um, I really want I encourage both program managers, individuals, families um, um, go out in your community and see what's out there. Um, and especially for our Compo 2 and Compo 3 soldiers, um, where you have local sheriff's office that sometimes are distributing gun locks or um, on post with medicines, you have Operation Med Drops. So again, just increasing those touch points to um, do better on access to lethal means. I, I, I would I would encourage everyone to go out there and do that. Um, and then, uh, yeah, just stay engaged is kind of my other um, uh, touch point. And I know everyone's like, oh my gosh, leader engagement, leader engagement, leader engagement. Well, it doesn't just have to be leaders, you know, peer engagement with each other is so huge. And we've talked about, again, this burdensomeness and connectedness um, and, and how that can impact um, individuals and and their path to suicide. So um if that's my plea at the end of this podcast, it would be for everyone to to go, you know, shake someone new's hand, um, you know, give them a hug, say hi, learn about them and and let's do better. Let's take another step in the right direction. Yeah. Dr. Brian, I just want to I want to thank you for um, taking the time to do this. It's it's nice to talk to somebody who isn't necessarily, you know, down the hall in our building is, is out of the army in a sense. Um, I know you still do a ton with um the military, but I, it, it's get that outsider perspective. I think it's, it's wonderful. Um, but before we let you go, I, w I just want to give you an opportunity for some final thoughts. Is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you think is important? Well, I, I guess the only other thing I would say is, you know, on the, on the quality of life issue. I mean, I think, you know, I think what this means is that it's like little things really do, you know, count. It's, you know, it's doing things together with your family, with your group. It's it's scheduling downtime. It's you know if you're a, if you're a senior NCO, NCO, CGO, something like that. It's you know having barbecues, um, you know, with the unit. It's these morale activities. Um, you know, it's also it's addressing you know issues of you know toxic leadership, toxic peers, it's accountability. Those are the things that sort of wear people down. And um, if we can address those things, we can not only promote and strengthen the positive, but also target the negative that, you know, sort of kind of brings all of us down. All of the all of that contributes to suicide prevention. It isn't just about, you know, constantly asking each other, are you going to kill yourself and then let's take you over to mental health. Sure. I mean, it's really treating each other with dignity and respect and um, and doing things that are valuable and worthwhile. Yeah. You just reminded me of a conversation I had and it was for the podcast and I can't remember who it was, but we were talking about people just want to want to feel like you care about them. You know, like, yes, this is a job, but. I, I want to know that you have my best interest at heart um, and, and talk to me like I'm a person. So yeah, we've, we've definitely talked about this before, but um, I appreciate your time. I appreciate you talking with us. I, 
Kelsey, any, any last words? Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Thank yeah, you again. Um, we really appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate it. We'll be back next week with an episode about the 3rd Infantry Division's Marn Guardian Program. We'll talk about what it is, why it's important, and how it aims to build stronger communities. In the meantime, you can find all things Forcecom on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can also find full video episodes of each podcast on YouTube. Just search for the Forcecom Frontline. We'll see you next time on the Frontline. Frontline.